Hello, good day, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Chatting Fit. This is the podcast that gives you knowledge and opinions from the world of health and nutrition and more. I'm your host, Finley McLaren, back again for episode 24. Today, we are interviewing Belinda Fetke. Belinda has done some incredible research into the corruption and conflicts of interest that are going on in the world of nutrition. And today, we're going to hear all about her story and how she decided to move into this research. Now, just like a small shop in a local community, we rely on you. We rely on you to give us reviews. We rely on you to share the content that we're making. That really helps the show to grow when we're at such a small stage. We really need your support. We really appreciate you listening. But if you can just go that little extra bit further and give us a review and give us a like and give us a share, then you will not believe how grateful we will be. I hope you enjoy the show today. And now let's hear from Belinda. Okay, Belinda, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Finn. I was just Uh, turning the little notice off. No, all good. Absolute pleasure. Could you just uh, kick us off by just laying the land and telling us a little bit about your background and what you do today? Well, if you think about my background, I was a nurse in my past life. I call it my past life because it seems so long ago, but I do have an understanding of um, medicine. I do have an understanding of um, nutrition and looking after people, I guess, people's health. So when Gary became a doctor, well, I used to actually do testing for him when he was at university. So I've been immersed in that space for a very long time. I have a, a basic understanding of it, but I decided to reinvent myself in 2000 and become a professional photographer. So I would say as a nurse, you're, you're behind the scenes. Certainly when I was training back in the days with the nurse's cap and in, in hospital training, seems like a million years ago now with all the university training, but you know, we were behind the scenes. We were doing the hard work. We were actually talking to people and seeing people and seeing how they responded. And back in those days, smoking was allowed. They sold cigarettes to patients in hospitals. So that was worked out to be a bad thing. You can smoke, you can smoke inside then? You could smoke in your hospital bed. They wow. actually, the pink ladies brought trolleys around to sell cigarettes to patients in what their beds. What a day. Beds. What a time. Part of our job was cleaning ashtrays. So, you know, this Madness. is amazing. A madness. So now, I guess, as I moved on and then became a photographer, again, I was telling people stories from behind a lens. You know, my, my um, business is called Be Photography, the art of storytelling. So I was behind the lens, capturing things, telling their stories. And until my husband got into trouble with the medical board, which we'll talk about later, mm. I'd always stayed a little bit behind the scenes. I'd never really had to step up and, and become a public person and speaking as I've had to do. So I think it's it's been a really interesting journey in that space and moving into that position. Mm. I mean that that's fascinating. And and you've had this history in healthcare and then you went off into photography. Uh, so you're really well positioned for what you're about to tell us. And like this is a fan this is an incredible story that I've come across recently. And particularly in terms of what happened to your husband, you mentioned Gary there and just wanted to clarify, Gary's your husband and he's a, he's a, he's a doctor, he's a surgeon. And um, I want you to just tell us a little bit about his history and then how that then feeds into what you've come across in, you know, as a result. So I was happily photographing away, setting up a really good business in wedding portraiture photography. And 
my husband, as you mentioned, an orthopedic surgeon in Tasmania. So we've got a catchment area of about 120,000 people. It is very small. We're right down the other end of the world. And here he was starting to understand that there was an absolute tsunami of metabolic disease hitting us, you know, hitting healthcare. And, I, and it's all over the world. But in Tasmania, he'd gone from maybe seeing somebody 20 years ago who needed a, um, either a debridement, which is taking off a little bit of the ulcerated skin or dying skin from feet and lower feet, even um, lower limb amputations as a result of the complications of, I'll say in particular type 2 diabetes, but it was also type 1 diabetes. Um, but specifically, this tsunami of type 2 diabetes was coming. So you think maybe 70, 80 years ago, we were looking at a tsunami of communicable disease. And we're starting to work out how we could stop those communicable diseases. Well, now there's a tsunami of non-communicable diseases. So these are diseases that appear to have escalated, I would say, since the introduction of the US dietary guidelines in 1977. They've certainly, if you look at the graphs, they've just gone crazy. And so you think, what happened in that time? That's where I'm going to leave you on that bit now. Go back to my husband. So here he was seeing this tsunami of complications of type 2 diabetes in his practice as an orthopedic surgeon. And he said to me, you can never, ever get the sound of a leg dropping into a bucket, a steel bucket. I don't even want to know know what that sounds like. You don't want to maim people. He didn't go into medicine to band-aid sick care. He didn't go into medicine to harm people. And suddenly he just started feeling like that's all he seemed to be doing. He would walk into a ward with people with rotting flesh. And it seemed like sometimes he was walking into a leprosy ward. The smell of rotting flesh is just horrific. And he said, there has to be something I've got to be able to do for these people. Go back one step. Gary was diagnosed with cancer in the year 2000. So he went on his own health journey and the first and it was found when it was found it was very extensive so there was a role for surgery that he had to have there was a role for chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all of those things but at the time no one ever discussed diet no one ever looked at the fact that when he had his pet scan it lit up like a christmas tree to sugar to glucose you know when they do the pet scan that's what they're doing they're putting glucose into your body to see where the cancer cell is and how active it is if that doesn't, we didn't think of it. I'm a nurse, mm. Gary's doctor, did not think about that. Mm. So in 2011, they were saying, we really don't think there's anything more we can do to help your cancer, the spread of it, because we've tried everything, all the drugs, everything else. So Gary decided to look at Dr. Google himself. And he went looking to think, what can I possibly do here? And he came across the work of Dominic Diagostino and Colin um, champ in the US and they were specifically looking into sugar and cancer and the role that it was playing in potentially feeding cancers and making them more active and he also came across a book here in Australia called um, Sweet Poison written by a lawyer David Gillespie and at the time he said what does a lawyer know about sugar that I don't possibly know in his medical training he learned anatomy physiology biochemistry they're trained in that they might not specifically talk about nutrition, but they're trained in all of those things for the first two years of medicine. The next three years, four years, they spend so much time looking at how to medicate 
operate and band-aid sick care that they forget that glucose or that starchy carbohydrates are simply glucose the minute you put them into your mouth. Now, all of these things just started coming into his, I guess, sphere of thought. And so as a doctor, he began advocating people reduce sugar. And this is in about 2011, 2012. And he looked at the hospital, walked around it. There were just junk food vending machines everywhere. Pink ladies, the people who took trolleys around to patients, not only had magazines and newspapers and things, but junk food. And I think we mentioned briefly in our chat beforehand, when I was nursing all those years ago, I used to serve cigarettes to patients mm. and patients smoked. So, you know, here we are with all this junk food now, just absolutely flooding these patients. And when you're stuck in bed and you've got nothing else to do, you want to just eat sugar. Like it, it's just a bit of a natural thing. And, and, think- and just, just, just to jump in there. So you were saying that he, mm. he noticed these two researchers that were re- researching in the US about sugar and cancer and that feeding the cancer. Yes. And, and they, those two researchers were finding that sugar was inflaming cancer and making cancer worse. And they were having, yeah. and they were experimenting by reducing the sugar diets of their patients. Yes. Okay. And they were having success with that. And he said, well, there's definitely something in this. And then he decided to, and that's when his sort of thought process started to really escalate. Yes. Okay. And, and he looked at the patients, the diabetic menus in the hospital that he was working in, which comes under the government guidelines actually encouraged three desserts per day to people with type 2 diabetes. So we're talking about people who potentially have ice cream three times a day, sugary ice cream, not non-diabetic. <laughs> so when I was nursing, they actually had a diabetic menu and it was a reduced sugar menu, reduced gel- sugar jellies and different things. But here we've got people who are virtually eating carbohydrates from the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed and encouraged by uh, dietitians in the hospitals who believe this is part of the, the guidelines and what and, they should be eating. And presumably the rates of cancer were just getting worse and worse and worse and no one was going cancer to remission and, and cancer and diabetes <laughs> just getting worse and worse and worse and more yes. and more operations. And Yeah, and so as I said, because Gary's specific focus was on complications of type 2 diabetes within the hospital system, he also saw a lot of people with trauma and other things, but this it just was hitting him that this was just becoming out of control. And so as he'd seen his own health improve by reducing sugar and a a few months later, because it took that long for his brain to remember that um, starchy carbs become glucose the minute you ingest them. So he started out just advocating or highlighting how much sugar was being served to people in hospital and advocating the role of reducing sugar and cereal for brekkie. (laughs) minimizing those things that are potentially causing out-of-control blood glucose in his patients that are in there already with the complications of type 2 diabetes. How can we stop this or minimize it and prevent it? So he became a very loud public health advocate in 2012 about the role of sugar. He did talk about cancer, but diabetes was much easier for him to talk about because he's an orthopedic surgeon and it was part of his bread and butter. And he didn't want to be doing this anymore. He didn't want to be looking after people who he felt were just being maimed by a disease that was caused by food and lifestyle. And he felt, he actually said to me, oh my gosh, Belinda, when I tell everybody this, he said, type 2 diabetes won't even be around in a year. He had no idea. 
But that there were a lot of forces. He was treading on toes. He didn't even know where they are. And um, instead of everyone not having type 2 diabetes anymore, mm-hmm. he was reported to the medical board by the dietitian, by a dietitian at his hospital for recommending people reduce sugar because that was Why? against the rule books. So exactly just- Why? Strictly because it was so, so this person had, well, the dietitian just saw it as, you know, how he can't say this about, you know, our dietary mm-hmm. guidelines that you don't think there was, there was, well, you, you're going to, I assume you're going to tell us more about why, <laughs> but um, that seems very, I'm, I'm curious about what the results were after, you know, the committee presumably, you know, said, okay, we, we need to look into this or what happened then? You would think they would just throw it out. But instead, it became a two and a half year star chamber investigation into Gary talking about nutrition as a doctor. And if you think about it, Gary could recommend that people reduce smoking, especially before surgery, because it impacts um, the nerve, it impacts, sorry, the blood circulation to peripheral, especially. And so when Gary was looking after people's feet, he needed their um, blood vessels to be as open and as elastic as they possibly could be. And smoking is shown to harden them and close them off. So he's not a respiratory person, but he can talk about the harms of smoking in his patients. He's not an exercise physiologist, but he can recommend to people that they do exercise, that they do other lifestyle-related diseases, uh, lifestyle-related things to improve mm. their disease. And for some reason, he couldn't talk about people reducing sugar. So my husband dug his heels in and he was determined to fight this. But the um, it's called the APRA, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, and the Medical Board of Tasmania determined that Gary, from 2000, I think it was after he got his first notification, a little while after that, they determined he was n- not allowed to talk about this while he was under investigation. And so Gary had started a, a social media page called Gary, or I think it was just called No Fructose, Gary Fecky No Fructose. And so when the Medical Board sent this thing, we worked out because I'm a photographer and I'd done a lot of graphic design and things. We just changed his header on the Facebook page to Belinda Fecky No Fructose. Not mm. that it was my specialty. I did tell people, I'm really sorry, this isn't my forte here, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about Gary being silenced and I'm going to start talking about some of my research into why he's being silenced. And it had, I think, over a million views of that one post. Wow, wow. People were just blown away that a doctor could be silenced from talking about something. So the medical board were not happy. They'd never been under scrutiny before. Most people, if you understand, when they get reported to the medical board, even if they haven't done anything wrong, there's a little bit of a suspicion. And so most people don't want the public to know that they're under investigation. This was about sugar. This is about people's health. So we just went, you know what? And the middle finger went up to the medical board. And we just got really, really loud on social media. Mm. And it was because of all the people on social media, because of these incredible people who questioned and wrote letters to the medical board that I'm sure in the end it also helped get Gary's name cleared. And, and, and during that time when you were getting loud on social media, mm. was there any mm. direct pushback from, because you were doing this presumably under your name now, was there, name. was there pushback and, and you know, um, I want to say, uh, people trying to silence you directly? I had a couple of groups that trolled and some of them were quite nasty and we had to sort of talk to our children and just say, I mean, they were adult children at the time, Mm. young adults getting towards being adults. 
um, you know, 17 and, and 20s. So we just said to them, just don't look. They're making these comments, putting up quite nasty things about Gary and myself, uh, our businesses, but they're telling people to report Gary to APRA because he was still talking about it, mm. not on social media, but in other ways. And yeah, it's quite a nasty space. But when it's the truth and when you truly believe it, and, and I mm. think also the fact that I'm not medical anymore and I was a wife, like when, I'm jumping ahead, but when Cyril Fabrecki came after my husband, the mama bear came out. Yeah. You know, this, this was not fair. And when you realise that it's not just about dietetics and guidelines and, and who's, it's about who's writing these guidelines. Mm. And I guess, Finn, that's where I started to stand up because I was watching Gary. He was still talking at um, a low carb down under events and different things for a little while. Or he had been up until he was silenced. And I had watched all of these health professionals, people who'd seen changes in themselves adopting low carbohydrate principles, because that's where it moved on to, of course, after mm. just reducing sugar. And seeing these people improve their health, improve health of their patients, and starting to talk about it publicly, I just went, why aren't the people who are changing the rules, the guidelines, and these guidelines aren't guidelines, they're strict rule books. Why aren't they considering this incredible amount of information that's coming out with these guys? Gary pretty much contributed a thesis to the medical board and, over two and a half years. <laughs> and just to, just to lay out the timeline we're at now. So, so Gary has, um, you know, he's seen all this terrible stuff unfolding with, with diabetes, people having amputations, the cancer rates. He's seen these yep. guys researching in the US and he's thought, great, we're going to bring this information to Australia and we're going to introduce it and we're going to say, look, look how incredible these changes we are if we just cut sugar he's then been reported to the in 2014 yes in 2014 and then there's a two-year sort of silencing window while he's being investigated that he's not allowed yes. to speak and it's during that window that you then said look we need to start talking about this on social media we need to make some noise that's yes. when you started to make this noise and the noise that you're specifically making is just around these dietary guidelines and it's just around sugar and it's just, or, or it's or it's it's around pointing it's, fingers at people or, or what's the what are the noises starting, that you're making that that so I guess in yeah. 2014 it was about May I think Gary was reported and at first he was just trying to fight this I was really busy with my photography business but Gary also decided in 2014 that he could not be silent about this message and if he couldn't talk to his patients about it he had a, another dietitian come and speak to him and say I'm really wanting to support people with type 2 diabetes using low carbohydrate or therapeutic carbohydrate restriction. You know, this sort of thing is really, really important. I've seen great improvements in my patients. So Gary and Britt started Nutrition for Life in 2014, I think eight weeks after Gary was reported. He said, then I'll have somebody at least who's a qualified dietitian to send my patients to. And so when Gary went back to work and, and got so busy again with work, I had to take over the running of Nutrition for Life. So I was full-time photographer, running Nutrition for Life, still had children that required a bit of care and, <laughs> um, and running the house and everything else. And, and I guess, so I was really busy for about the first six months. And then after that, just, it just started questioning more and more. We were told there was an expert witness who'd been brought in to the medical board. And honestly, I thought, look, I've done re research myself. I've never been trained in research. And I think maybe that's been a really good thing because I haven't stuck in that academic silo of thinking this is how you have to look and research and do things. 
I've just gone, this doesn't make sense. So I've just dug deeper and deeper. And so I started specifically looking at who this expert witness was. And I thought with cognitive dissonance, he must work for the sugar industry because why else is this going to be a problem? He was the biggest, I would say, gun in nutrition in the Southeast Asia Pacific region. Massive. He'd been the head of um, International Union of Nutrition Science. He'd been very involved with the World Health Organization and just really involved in guidelines and medical and dietetic training here in Australia. So he had to work for the sugar industry, surely. And so spent can you quite say a few his, can weeks. Can you say his name or not? Oh, I've, I've, it's been written up. Yes, Mark Walquist. Mark um, Walquist. Professor Mark Walquist. It's, okay. If you go onto my website, there's quite a bit written about him. And in fact, Jane Buxton, she's just written the plant-based con in the UK. And um, she has, she had to have a lot of, um, verification about everything to be able to include his name in her book because she's written a bit, bit about our story and some of my research as well. So, yes, we can say it publicly because he came after my husband. Mm. Anyway, he didn't work for the sugar industry. He worked for the cereal industry. Wow. And, of course, that just made complete sense. You know, mm. Gary's also starting to talk about not just sugar but reducing um, processed carbohydrates and looking into this sugar and cereal industry, really, they overlap a lot anyway. So it made sense. When I started to realize that for 20 years, this man had worked for a specific cereal company here in Australia called Sanitarium, I just thought, oh, hmm, in the back of my head, yeah, I vaguely remember, vaguely know that it's actually a church-owned cereal company because the Seventh-day Adventist church founded Sanitarium back in that 1897 and so I decided to start looking at well why does a church own a cereal industry what are their beliefs why are they talking about all of these sort of things and that has led to a huge minefield but as I said before uncovering documents on the internet and I'm not a hacker I'm not very clever I'm good at researching but I only find things that are there um, I uncovered documents in 2017 stating that Gary was targeted active defense by the cereal industry, a group of four cereal industries, Kellogg's, Nestle, Sanitarium and Freedom Foods. Wow. These to, shut, to, to specifically shut him down and, and to, to stop him talking about what he discovered about sugar and, and these other things. He was named. Low Carb Down Under was named. Um, David Gillespie, like Marianne DeMarcy. There was a few people who were named. But Gary was the only practicing medical doctor in these documents that I uncovered. So, so Part of so, his... Just to take you back, so this is we, yeah. we, from 2014. We had this two-year window, and then so mm -hmm. what happened in 2016, the year before that these documents came out? You know, at the, well, I guess the been, end of the investigation and good idea. Been um, I had already submitted um, documentation showing that this expert witness worked for Sanitarium. I'd shown you know how can you be having an expert witness here who's been totally involved with a cereal industry. At that time, I could only find about six years, but he was working for Sanitarium when he was the expert witness for um, the board. I said, yeah, and they, they wrote back to us and said, we don't believe you. I was like, um, this is screen grabs showing he's working there right now. No, nope, we don't believe you. This anyway, is sort of so public record on, on Sanatorium's website and sort of their board of directors. Yes. And they're like, you, you know, have to the go into the Wayback Machine now. You have to go into the Wayback Machine to find it all. So 
but I have got the documentation. I've got the screen grabs. I've got, you know, I know where yeah. it is on the Wayback Machine. So I can find all of it easily. And that's the way, the Wayback Machine, that's. It's an archive machine. It's brilliant for anyone who wants to research history. Okay. And as you go along, people who just stop using their websites anymore, they just, they get off, but you can access those the websites. old forms of the website pages and all the before the updates have occurred and everything like that. Yeah, it, it's it's a archive. It's called a website crawler, and it will take screen grabs every now and then, especially if there's a lot of activity on the website. If somebody you know maybe has a lot of visitors to their site and then they change something, the archive web crawler will take a capture of wow. the website at that time. There's a lot of things that are missing and. You know, some of the papers and different things that people might put up, the screen grab might have been captured during that time. So there's a lot of bits that are missing, but it's still a very, very good resource to find things. And that's how I found that this man was working for Sanitarium. So well wow. worth it if you're doing any research and you want wow. to Wow, and check it out, the Wayback Machine. Yes, archive. Yeah, it's mm. called... Um, yeah, the Wayback Machine, and it's just an archiver. So, 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 you, so you found mm. out that this guy was working for it's it's uh, Mark Walquist is working for Sanatorium, 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 Sanitarium, Sanita- San- Sanitarium. And yes. so, after you find that out, and after you say, "Look, guys, he's clearly working for the cereals industry, so clearly he's going to have yes. conflicts of interest in getting my husband silenced and yes. and getting you know Gary's." Um, you know, information away and keep the dietary guidelines as is and stop people cutting out cereals and stop people cutting out sugar. Um, and then they just said, we don't believe you. Our decision still stands. Um, and in 2016, yeah, and sorry, yeah, 2016, they actually put out the determination saying that Gary was silenced. It was lifelong. It was non-appealable in a court of law. The only medical doctor in the world silenced from talking about nutrition to his patients. And they even had this stupid disclaimer, like that was so petty that they wrote at the end of it, even if low carb, healthy fat principles becomes accepted best practice, you can never talk about it. I mean, I mean that's just a medical board that's meant to be protecting the public. So how come wow. if this is the best practice, Gary can't talk about it? So as I say, we couldn't, we couldn't even appeal it in a court of law. So we just got louder and louder and louder on social media. But we and, were and what were the, to, sorry to keep jumping in, but what were yeah, their what were their fine. abilities to silence you? Did they have justification to, you know, to, to stop Gary practicing altogether? Did, or, yeah, or what, yes, what, to take what, his medical what license. Was their that was the threat. They could take their, okay, that was the overarching threat. Okay. Yes. And we were in an interesting position, Finn. We'd our children, as I say, by this time had all grown up. We had one more university, a lot of fees to go, but the others were independent. And I guess a lot of people who are reported to the medical board, they've, it's their career. What are they going to do for the rest of their life? How are they going to pay their mortgages? How are they going to pay all the things that they potentially had invested in, thinking that they would have a career in medicine? We just went, you know what? We're public school kids. A lot of doctors are privately school educated in Australia. Mm. We're public school kids. We came from the school of hard knocks. You know, if you wanted to go to the toilet at lunchtime, your head was literally flushed in the toilet. <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of things that happened at our school. We went to school, the same school. So we went, you know what? We can, we've got to stand up for this. This is not just about us. This is about allowing other doctors to talk about nutrition that are seeing it because potentially that meant every doctor was going to be silenced on low carb. We have to stand up 
for the people that we're seeing are improving their health. Like this isn't fair. I mean, you know what? Let's just, let's just keep going. <laughs> so we did. In the meantime, and jumping back, about 2015, I started researching sanitarium. And I didn't talk about my research publicly. I only spoke to Gary and a little bit to my sister because I couldn't believe what I was uncovering. And, and I think I, I'd grown up in a Christian household and the concept of challenging a church's ideology felt really confronting. As I say, I was a photographer behind the scenes, you know, but I'm thinking this is actually impacting my husband's ability and potentially other doctors and dietitians and other health professionals from telling the truth. And as I came to understand Sanitarium's message or the Seventh-day Adventist Church's message and their beliefs, I think it, I just, Gary just said to me, you have to start talking about this. Well, he was the first one to talk about it. He spoke about my research at a CrossFit Games in 2017. It was outside of Australia, so I went, you know what? <laughs> come after me, take my, take my um, medical license, do whatever you want. Um, so he spoke there about my research. And it's really important to understand that the Seventh-day Adventist Church believe from their prophetess, the founder in 1863 and her vision, that the biblical Garden of Eden diet is the God-appointed diet for man. So this disregards Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which were also written by Moses, he didn't just write about the Garden of Eden. He wrote those two books as well, which the Jewish faith um, based their dietary beliefs on. So that was in the First Testament. It disregards everything written in the Second Testament of the Bible. It disregards an ancestral diet for you know, everyone, and it disregards evolutionary theory and hunter-gathering. It is potentially, and I believe, causing harm. It is a high-carb, low-fat diet based on a vision from their prophetess that is potentially starving brains of healthy fats. <clears throat> and as Zoe Harkham says, you know, cholesterol is vital to our bodies. It's so vital we even make it ourselves. And, and it's pushing this really high-carb diet that if you look at non-communicable disease, metabolic health, as Gary spoke about, and the nutritional model of metabolic disease, high-carb diets are at the centre of it. He believes sugar, carbs, and polyunsaturated oils are like the, the connector and, and make it even worse. But this is exactly what the Seventh-day Adventist Church are advocating. And they are doing research to prove, not disprove, divine inspiration, their prophetess, Ellen G. White. And you think, how can this even be affecting any of us? You know, how can it affect you in Mexico? How can it affect me in Australia? Seventh-day Adventist Church have a very, very small footprint in Australia and in the UK. And I would say quite small footprints in other places as a physical church. But their influence is massive. And in America, they actually own 84 hospitals. They own clinics. They own, I think there's 28 in Florida alone. They own like complete healthcare systems, four complete healthcare systems within and, and are separated in various areas across America. And this is direct ownership or this is through different companies? Direct ownership or... of the church. Okay, direct wow. Direct ownership of the church. And this is presumably yes. done under sort of 
a charitable guys you know we're doing this because we're a charitable organization and we're trying to help people free charity tax-free charity there are 21 food industries worldwide all come under their tax-free charity status so in australia we've got sanitarium making food which is which was founded to take the place of flesh meat milk and butter that's what ellen g white said when she came to australia to found it i didn't even know she was the one who came here Mm. She set up Sanitarium based on Kellogg's model in the US. And what, so, what, was, what was Kellogg's model in the US? If you can just talk us a little bit. Exactly. That. So Kellogg's model obviously was Kellogg's cornflakes and other things. But John Harvey Kellogg was only 12 years old when he went to work for the first family of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when he went to work for James and Ellen G. White. She was the founder and prophetess of the, of the church. He was 12. I've had 12-year-old children. Most people would know what a 12-year-old child is like. They are totally impressionable. They believe, and if this young man was immersed in not only her publications and their journals, but her testimonies to the church, like she has the most prolific female author in the world and the most translated of either either gender worldwide. Nobody's even really heard of her. Yeah. So this is incredible. If you consider when he was 12, he was typesetting her book, A Solemn Appeal. It also had a title of A Solemn Appeal to Mothers, but it spoke only to mothers of deterring their children from masturbating. And she believed one of the key reasons children masturbated was because they were given meat. She was told in vision that meat was a toxic stimulant. It was as bad, if not worse, than alcohol, tobacco, caffeine. This was a belief that meat stirred baser passions. And so the baser passions were self-vice, touching yourself, masturbation, all of those things. And she stated that in you know, it, masturbation didn't only spiritually defile people, but morally and physically. So in this book that John Harvey Kellogg was typesetting at the age of 12, she spoke about physical heads decaying, epilepsy as a cause of masturbation and eating meat. She spoke about all of these terrible things. And she even, his book states, it was as if you put a pistol to your heart and took your own life. That's how bad it was considered. She, She told the church that it was the duty of their commandment keeping people God's chosen remnant church to public to be involved in public health education. So this was their commission. Medical evangelism is the right arm of the church and their health reform message, the entering wedge. And there are a lot of good things she spoke about because it was at the time of temperance health reform. And so from the early 1800s, there were people talking about maybe the role of vegetarianism and it was about masturbation is very different to vegetarianism in the Eastern um, history and Eastern religions. But in in the Western world, it was about masturbation. It was about defiling your body. Meat eating was, um, you you took on the role of an animal. And Mm. I mean, I've seen cows, they don't look very (laughs) angry to me. But, you know, it was this whole point of eating flesh meat was warm warm blooded. Mm. And so some people have said to me, well, you make the Seventh-day Adventist church or when you're talking about things, it sounds like all Christian churches believe the same thing. But 
she was the only one who took the doctrines of this biblical Garden of Eden diet into the church's beliefs, into their teachings, into the medical evangelism, and it's affecting us today. This, yeah, it's it's unbelievable, and I can I can almost write a thesis on I mean, it's to- it's totally wild. It's really really it wild. I mean, because. And we discussed a little bit before this, you know, and I want to hear more about, you know, where, where you think this is going and, and where you think this is still being pushed from. But a lot of what we see in terms of, you know, an in inverted commas sort of conspiratorial chat comes in the form of people believing that people like big pharma, big food, big tech, all of these sort of big organizations are driving forward mostly for profit and power. But this is a total, this is kind of a total 180 where we're saying, no, this is not about profit and power. This is about profit and power, perhaps as the, as the first wave, say. <laughs> as, as the first wave, but it's really about ideological push towards a, a, a real religious overhaul and getting people to, you know, suppress these, this sort of animal urges and getting us to, you know, all be on what, what you described as the garden of Eden diet. So it, it's, it's feels much more sinister you know than just yeah it's a stealth it's it's very stealth and i can get my head around i can get my head around (laughs) someone just being greedy and going for profit and just wall street trying to push up profits 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 but something when it's really ideological and religious driven is a lot more hard it's a lot harder to sort of get my my head around because i'm thinking that's that's very hard to to stop and and when it's a purpose, they don't have to write it as a declaration of interest. It's not a conflict of interest. You know, mm. the Sunshine Act in the US, you have to declare if you own stocks in a company, you have to declare if you um, are earning or you're on a board and all of those things. Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they have educated so many people into um, medical and dietetic fields, into proving, not disproving divine inspiration, that it doesn't have to be acknowledged anywhere. So it, it also makes it very tricky. I think the thing to understand is that not only does she talk about the biblical Garden of Eden diet as being the God-appointed diet for man, they don't make it that you have to give up meat to be part of the church. But if you read in behind all the scenes, they take you where you're at and they move you to where you want to be. But their belief is that they've been commissioned by God to pronounce the third angel's message. And most Christian churches would have no idea because there's a lot of angels written in the, in the Bible, but they specifically targeted whatever the third angel was saying to attach their health reform message to. And so that means their commission is to tell the world about health. And that way, then they can carry on and talk about their version of the gospel after that. And there are a lot of extra biblical um, ideal ideas in that and it's too big a conversation to go into today Mm. but this idea that they have to get the health message everywhere that's how they're going to share the gospel so they can use health to go into places like china which doesn't really like christian religions but they come in as offering um offering hospitals and and educating dietetics and educating medical people that's how they get in this is how they get into here and this is how they get into there in australia there's a slogan Aussie kids are wheat picks kids. They made up a jingle about it. I was a kid. I used to sing mm. it. And you think, Aussie kids are wheat picks kids. Catholic Church doesn't make up a thing saying every single child in Australia is part of the Catholic Church. 
I think it's really interesting subliminal messaging mm. that the church has been able to use across the world to just seem like something, it's just common sense. Of course, mm. Sanitarium is the health and wellbeing company. They were providing resources in Australia, fact sheets for 20 years. I called it out and it's had to go a couple of steps behind now. But a GP told me in every single GP practice, they had two different sorts of software you could get you know, um, to print out fact sheets about health. Because if you didn't have time in your consultation period, you could push a button, mm. just quick click, and out would come this actual um, branded fact sheet from Sanitarium. Doctors didn't even think. Again, it, we're so sublim subliminally, um, you know, almost conditioned. Uh, conditioned, thank you, yeah. to accept that this would be fact. Mm. And on these fact sheets, not only do they talk about, you know, eating carbs and spreading carbs throughout the day, reducing saturated fat. Um, I think the diabetes one said sugar was okay and endorsed by Diabetes Australia, but their pregnancy one even talked about wheat bix their own brand as being a really important part of the diet. So as you say, this doesn't just justify their belief. This is actually promoting their commercial arm. So yes, there is a profit and they state they use their profit to grow the church, to grow the church's message, does everyone realize that every time you buy a packet of wheat picks, you're contributing to the church? Mm. Free donation. <laughs> I, I just need I need to get my head around this because okay. so so there are more. Do you think this is moving in the direction of the 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 ultimate goal is just to get as much people just eating grains and eating sugar and reducing saturated fat and reducing meat based on the idea that it's going to sort of suppress the sort of human will, sorry, there's my alarm going off there, suppress the human sort of will. Um, and and it, for, for, to what end? To, what's the next sort of goal there? Great question, Finn. Really good question. If you read through all their documentation, and I've spent seven years immersed in it, sometimes I just, I can't even go to sleep at night. I'm just still thinking about how to put all these things into place. I believe they think it's their message will hasten the return of Christ because if the biblical garden of Eden diet is truly what we're going to go back to in heaven, fruits, grains, nuts, and seeds, there will be no eating of animals and all these other things. We have to get rid of our fleshly lust on earth. Otherwise there's, it's a waste of time. Jesus coming back. If everyone's going to still want to eat meat. So that's part of it. She also talks about, before translation, which is before you are saved, you know, before salvation and you become part of the heavenly um, group, you have to give up meat. You might not have to give it up at the age of two or three or four or 10 or 20, but before you're translated, you have to have given up meat. And again, they, she talks about no ministers will eat meat because that's a bad influence on people. But I truly believe it's about salvation and hastening the return of Christ. They are an apocalyptic church. They are praying for the end of the world. Ellen G. White said it was going to happen in her lifetime, and, and it hasn't. So, you know, there's a lot of prophecy around this. They were born of the Millerite movement. They were born of a time when Jesus was meant to return to earth in 1844. That was meant to be. And Ellen G. White had a vision as to why he didn't actually come back. So to save face and create a new church around that time, she said, 
that they got it wrong. He wasn't meant to come back to New England, which wasn't even part of the world when the, when the Bible was written. America hadn't even been founded. So, you know, he wasn't going back to Israel. He wasn't going back to Jerusalem. He was coming back to New England. And if when he didn't turn up, and a lot of people were following William Miller at the time and believing that this was going to happen, he managed to talk about the numbers in the Bible to say it was, this was it. She said that God moved from, uh, Jesus moved from his holy place to his most holy place. So they don't believe that atonement was finished at the cross. They believe that Jesus is now working with a recording angel in heaven and going through the books. So if he comes across your name, Finn, mm. today, and he says, okay, I'm going to absolve all your sins, but he doesn't come back for another 20 years, your name's already been read. So if you commit a sin or if you don't do good works, potentially in 20 years when we have to um, present ourselves, you won't have an intercessor. And so they never know. So the people who are part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church never know when their name's going to be cleared. And so, so, this so we're promoted to always them, being on guard and always being always on guard. Mm. And and this commission, it's total member involvement. Everybody has to promote this idea of health reform. It doesn't matter whether you're a housewife, whether you're a child or anything. You've got to talk about health. You've got to talk about nutrition. You've got to talk about all these things, mm. cooking classes. You know, how do you get people involved? Because their commission is to tell every tongue, nation, and land. It doesn't matter if they don't convert to Seventh-day Adventism. Mm but they have to tell everybody and enough people have to give up meat to make it worthwhile for Jesus to return. And that's my understanding of. Okay. So that's the, that's their ultimate drive to anti-meat is so that Christ will return to the earth. And, I believe. Yes. And just to roll it back around to, to the, the actual timeline that we're working here. So, so, so Mark Walquist, you sort of, you came to the medical board and you said, look, the Mark, Mark Walquist guy is, mm. is, Good, massive conflicts of interest sanitarium yes. is is you know got their fingers in a lot of pies here and they're trying to push the dietary guidelines and then mm-hmm. um you started making a lot of noise um and they still said that gary couldn't um that, that he couldn't practice and then you still made noise um and and then what happened after that i still want to know to what extent is is this church sort of do you believe is infiltrated in, in many of these big companies like Kellogg's and, um, and well, Kellogg's was founded by Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. It was yeah. never owned by the church. But to what, to what extent is it actually like the employees of these companies, you know, or is it just, you know, the guy at the top, he's making this up, making these sort of rules and everyone else is just sort of infused with this enthusiasm for cereals. So like how yeah. much are, are people signed up to this doctrine do you believe versus how many people are just living their lives, making some money for a company? I believe that it's a mixture, but the people at the top of the church, the people who are totally committed to the church's message and promoting it have gotten themselves into dietary guidelines. Joan Sabat is a perfect example in the U S 2020 dietary guidelines. He wrote an article, I believe in response because they mentioned my research within their references um, in response to Gary talking about my research in 2017. So in 2018, the global influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on diet 
was published in a book in the religion journals, co-authored by Joan Sabat, who is, was on the 2020 US Dietary Guidelines Committee, working out the caps on saturated fat with a vested interest in getting rid of all fat because that went against the church's beliefs. So I highly conflicted. The American, the American Association of um, Dietetics was actually founded by a woman called Elena Cooper, co-founded, and she was a protege of John Harvey Kellogg. Both her brothers were devout Adventists. She was heavily influenced. I can't find in my writing in my readings that she was a devout Seventh-day Adventist, but the church often claimed that she was. So here's someone who's founded the American Dietetics Association, regardless of whether she was a devout Adventist, she was the very first industry dietitian. Her cookbooks and the, and the things that she wrote, you could only create these recipes if you bought John Harvey Kellogg's inventions. And his inventions were to take the place of flesh, meat, milk, and butter. Good so, business, good business yeah, model. Not make, Good business. This is how the American Dietetics Association started. <laughs> so founded on food industry and carried through. The Seventh-day Adventist Church have been very, very influential in the American Dietetic Association. Um, I've got that on my website in numerous spots. In Australia, you know, the vegetarian position papers were all referenced by Sanitarium. They've written into medical diet into the medical journals. And at this very point in time, there's a group called the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and the Global Lifestyle Medicine Alliance. And they are running courses and education and exams around the world. This group was founded as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine on the Loma Linda University campus in 2003. All nine founding members were devout Seventh-day Adventists. The church sponsors and promotes and supports them. It's not owned by the church but they're very tied to the church. Sanitarium supports them. And in Australia, Sanitarium has been very involved in the promotion here. They are already in medical education in America. So I think there's seven universities completely involved in it. And they are trying very hard to get it into all education. Right at this point in time, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health, which you may have heard of, is running. President Biden announced they want to make an end to it. The very inaugural one, the very first one, was in 1969 under um, Nixon. And he allowed, or, and he and the Senate Select Committee under George McGovern developed the very first dietary goals. And they were heavily influenced by not only vested interests wanting to minimise the harms of sugar, but religious ideology wanted to demonise animal proteins or animal fats, I should say, at that time. So I would suggest now this second White House conference wants to take it a step further and demonize animal proteins. And the American College of Lifestyle Medicine have offered and been accepted from Biden, um, or the White House Conference, that they will donate $24 million worth of educational materials to health professionals. And I keep jumping up and down going, this isn't a donation. Mm. <laughs> They're trying to supply 100,000 health professionals with 5.5 hours of a training module that they've already created, it's online. It won't cost them a cent to offer it to these other people. Mm. And it costs $1,500. So who's paying the other $750 if they're offering half of this price? What happens if these people then decide to join the American College of Lifestyle Medicine? I mean, this is potentially a windfall to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in the hundreds of millions of dollars, which I'm in the process of writing a, an article about now. Mm. 
Biden's also been influenced heavily by um, the 89th Congress of US Mayors was in 2021. And they announced that they would accept the blue zones. And that's 1,400 US mayors signed a declaration to say they wanted to adopt blue zones and it's a brand. And that that once it's um, passed by the, the mayors, it goes to the Senate and goes to president, the president of the United States. Blue Zones is owned by Adventist Health, a church-owned health group. So we've got the, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church's health reform message literally being embedded into the very fabric of American society at this point in time, I believe without people even understanding the consequences or the, the effects that this is going to have on them. Well, well the, 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 I mean, this is all, it's huge revelation. It sounds conspiracy. Well, it, <laughs> it sounds conspiracy, it, sorry. It, yeah, it, but it does. Fact. I mean, it it's does. It, it's, it's, it's very difficult because we've seen so much. This is just my take, is that society has gone so far away from religion now yes that anything that touches on things being like religiously driven are seen as you know oh that's conspiratorial or are you know it's ridiculous like the church doesn't have the power that it used to like and and everything is sort of cast but from what you're saying it seems like this stuff has just gone underground they've they've gone cloak and dagger and you know they're just coming out as health coming out as health health. and and using the tools that they can at their disposal and Mm -hmm. you know i i wanted to touch on this being that we've got the Seventh-day Adventist church. Yes. What, are there any other competing religious organizations trying to get their messages across somewhere? Because I'm thinking, you know, that we've got different religious sects all over the world. And what makes yeah. it so this must be a, 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 a path that other religions have thought they could get their messaging in. So, so what I are there any other, believe, thing, any other things yeah. that com- competing there? From all of my research, and I've looked into a lot of religions, I've looked into, as I say, the history of vegetarianism, I've gone all the way back to the beginning of time. I don't believe any other church has been so determined to use health as the entering wedge into their version of the gospel. There's, there's no other church that's doing it. I say, Aussie kids are wheat bix kids, nobody bats an eyelid. Mm. Catholic children will be wheat bix kids. <laughs> you don't say uh, Catholic uh, Aussie kids are Catholic choir boys. You know, no other church actually understands that the Seventh-day Adventist stealth message is part of their church as well. Mm. And, and I think just understanding how they've rewritten things to and, and tweaked things to align with the Jewish messaging and with uh, Muslim messaging and Buddhist messaging, I mean, because they need to get their message to the 1040 window as well, not just to the Western world. How do they take this message in? How do they do that? Mm. They use health as the entering wedge. And I'm not saying that these people are bad. They're not setting out to harm people. They just truly believe that this is their commission. They truly believe that God told their prophetess that the God-appointed diet for man does not include flesh meat or any animal protein or fat. I believe the reason that fish has gotten away with a lot of, uh, with less um, questioning is that it's cold blooded. So flesh meat is warm blooded. So, so you, when can eat, hear about, you can eat fish within their sort of guidelines. You can eat you fish. Can't, you can't necessarily eat it, but it's not as frowned upon, mm. I don't believe. 
you know, their, their belief is that we've got to work towards fruits, grains, nuts, and seeds. But if you look at the Adventist health reform, uh, sorry, the Adventist health studies, which have been quoted over and over and over again by themselves, if you read the fine print, the actual allocation of being vegan means eating meat or animal proteins or fats less than once a month. Mm. And vegetarian is less than once a week. But that is not the message they give out to the general public. Mm. So their health could be leveraged off the fact that they actually do include a little bit of animal protein and fat in their diet, even though they claim that they're vegan. It's not what the public are hearing. It's not what the 18 to 25 to 30 year olds are hearing about giving up all meat. Mm. And it, it, it was first about masturbation. Then it became Ellen G. White was told meat caused cancer. And if you have a look at where Joan Sabat's absolute key work is heading now, it's all about meat and climate change. Mm. That's the whole the, thing. That, that seems at the to low be Melinda. The, that yeah. seems to and be the so driving wedge there. Is, yep. is using climate change and, you know, making that super sexy, you know, save the planet, save the world, don't eat meat. All of that stuff is starting to be the main vessel that they're getting this anti-meat campaign. Because and, I think there's a lot yeah. of seeping in knowledge now where people are saying, hang on, meat is actually quite healthy. Like it's, it is, I think there is a message getting through, you know, Absolutely. lots of work from great doctors and yourself, you know, yourself and your husband saying, look, we need to be low carb and we need to be eating meat and we need to be eating high quality proteins and animal proteins. So and that how message can you stop is getting people? Through. Well, exactly. The, the way that you, then stop you have to people. start using climate change. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's the message. That's the beating drum. And there's, mm. there's so many, but so many industries, you know, like, even if even if someone doesn't want to believe that it's, um, you know, that, that, that there's a, that there's a, a a church driving this messaging, that you can still see that there's vested industry interest in having one enemy, which is agricultural, the meat industry, that yes. allows them to keep working, and keep making money. You know, we can still keep pumping out chemical plastics. We can still keep pumping out. Um, you know, fertilizers, we can still keep pumping out all of this stuff that still goes on. And all we have to do is demonize the localized farmer who's producing, yes. you know, his quality meats, which he doesn't make very much money off of. We don't make much, very much money off. So, you know, who really cares if he gets cast by the wayside? So yeah. it, it really feeds into a lot of beneficial things. And it's, it's cheap for governments to feed people on grains, and, and, you know, like I was speaking to Brian Sanders the other day of Food Lies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's saying that you can live on grains, but you're not going to thrive. Yes. You know, you, you survive. And that's all the government really wants, needs people to do is just to have enough calories to survive, be reasonably satiated and for big companies to make their money. Let them eat cake. People actually exactly. feel happy if they can eat sugar. And they can do all those other things. They don't realize how much it's affecting their minds and, and illness because it's a slow, steady illness that happens. It doesn't happen instantly. So I think people lose track. And if you can let people eat cake, mm. <laughs> they don't question the fact that you're going to take away their protein. They don't exactly. question that nearly as much. And it is this, this belief and taking away animal proteins and fats that I think is very, very concerning. They... Seventh-day Adventist Church are involved in dietary guidelines. They're involved in food industry. If you read um, William Shirtliff and Akiki Ayogi's summary, they said no other entity has been as 
instrumental in creating alternatives to meat and dairy and pushing the soy industry in the Western world. Mm. It was a Seventh-day Adventist who invented soy infant formula because he had to do it because they couldn't have milk. You know, if they couldn't have the mother's milk, they couldn't Mm. have cow's milk. How are we going to do this? How are we going to save children and let them grow? These things have been done for an incredible purpose. John Harvey Kellogg invented the very first commercial meat alternatives, protos Mm. and nuttos and all of these things, the soy fake meats. The Seventh-day Adventist church have so good milks, Mm. oat milks, almond milks, all of those things. Everything that they are producing is to take the place of flesh meat, milk and butter, and we're just subliminally subliminally Mm. purchasing these things because we believe they are health. They're healthy. Well, they're branded in such a way. Branded so you say, you know, and, and marketed and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I there's some interesting stuff tying up here because I, I saw the other day that, that they're either not as, or I'd be interested to get your take because China's meat consumption is going through the roof and then their messaging seems to be, you know, that they're, and they have incredibly tight governmental control. So my thoughts are that, you know, government there understands the value of meat to a powerful population, to a strong population and a population that you want to be healthy, you want, yes. you want them to eat meat. And the fascinating stat is that one of their offcuts from, I think it's either, either sugar noodles or rice noodles or, or something, the, the, one of the uh, waste products of that is pea protein. And they export an incredible amount of pea protein to the West. Yes. And we export an incredible amount of beef. Meat. Yep. Of meat. <laughs> to china so mm-hmm. there's a bit of a disconnect going on here we're getting the waste product of their of, of their food system and we're sending them the the lion's share of the best of our food yes so yes. there's a disconnect there about what, what we're obviously what we're being fed in in our health and nutrition and mm-hmm. what we believe to be or what our dietary guidelines are saying but there is a foothold in 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 some of these countries where Clearly, there isn't a strong hold from all these big companies pushing from those positions. So I'm just, I mean, for me, that just blows my mind. I didn't even realize it the other day. I just thought pea protein, everyone loves plant-based stuff, pea protein, you know, maybe that's a good option for someone who's vegan. And it just, when you put it in those frames, it's like, hang on, this is a deep, deep rabbit hole. A very deep rabbit hole. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church are very involved in, especially in the, Zhejiang province um, through industry because the church invests in industry, again, tax-free. So they invested in the largest privately held vertically integrated stevia production in the world and they um, extrude the stevia in China. So you know, this is, and that's Sanitarium who owns that. So then, you know, under their umbrellas, they've invested in a lot of industry. They've invested in a lot of um, medical research into milestones and how and colbum, you know, the actual drug. Because if you have a low-fat diet, Gary has discussed that if you have a low-fat diet and then suddenly you eat a high-fat meal and you get milestones, everyone goes, oh, it was, it was the high-fat meal that caused it. But it's the low-fat diet that we're living and existing on that causes the milestones in the first place because that bile should be emptying every day from mm. eating healthy fats. But because it doesn't, these stones form. And if you eat one meal with a high fat, well, the, bile, the gallstone, 
gallbladder is just going to do its job and push out the bile, but it extrudes the stones. So people are blaming the firemen for the fire. Mm. And so the Seventh-day Adventist church have to create drugs to get rid of these stones so their low-fat diets don't become a problem. The things that they're investing in is unbelievable. And, again, it's all tax-free. They run the largest health and wellness programs here in Australia and a lot of it in the US. Again, tax-free. They don't pay any tax on government-supplied health and wellness programs Mm -hmm. that the government pays the church for. That Blue Zones that I mentioned before, one of the Blue Zones projects to get accredited for one particular town or city in America back in 2018, it was going to cost them $6.5 million just for the consulting and accreditation. Imagine 1,400 mayors have just signed up for it. Mm. $6.5 million. The church will pay no tax on any of that. And, and, and in, term, big and money. in terms in terms of knowing like how this how this money is flowing, these are through companies that are owned directly. You can see on paper it's Seventh-day Adventist Church. And then uh, these, it's tricky. You've got to go hunting. Yeah. So but and, and then in terms of members of that church, their their names are on like they wouldn't have uh, how do, yes. how do on you the board, know on the board? Yeah. Yes. But how do you yep. know that each of those people on the board of directors of these big companies are Seventh-day Adventist? Only because I've followed the investments from the church okay. on that way. You, okay. you couldn't. And so, and I can't even access everything. So yeah. there'd be so much more. And, and I've specifically looked at sanitarium here in Australia and New Zealand. So I can't even tell you what the American church has invested in, mm. except I know they've just invested in the blue zones. Um, and if you look at the original blue zones that were worked out by demographers, Michelle yeah. Kula um, and Giovanni Pess, they were self-sustaining, isolated countries. They lived on the land. They had no processed food arriving. They had raw goat's milk generally. They all, all four, Icaria, um, Okinawa, Sardinia, and uh, Costa Rica, where you've just been, um, the Nicoya Coast, I think it is, all four of those places used lard for cooking. They might only kill a pork occasionally and not have it all the time, but they extracted the lard and used it for cooking. The fifth blue zone, who do you think the fifth blue zone is? I don't know. I couldn't even hazard a guess. Okay. In 2004, Dan Butner decided to do a National Geographic tour into the blue zones. And it wasn't going to go really, really well to see that these really poor communities, um, miles from anywhere, had the longevity pill. So he needed an American one, Loma Linda, Seventh-day Adventist Church's main congregation of, Mm. I would say, retirees and employees because if you have a look at a picture of the Loma Linda University Health and the Children's Hospital there, there, it's Las Vegas. It's massive. And Mm. um, so about a third of the community at Loma Linda are Seventh-day Adventists. These are people who uh, tend to be affluent, who have, again, in the general public, you would go out to dinner. We found when we started going out to dinner, people would say to us, oh, why aren't you having sugar? I'll just have this little bit. You know, it won't hurt, won't harm. Mm. You get a lot of peer pressure. At Loma Linda, there is no peer pressure to cheat because they're all being watched. Yeah. 
And so, presumably, are, are they all in really bad shape because they're eating terribly? Or No, but these are generally people who've chosen to come as a bit of a retirement place to Loma Linda. They're affluent. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They do all the other healthy lifestyle things, mm. and they eat a vegan-promoting diet. But this is one spot. If you go to other areas of Seventh-day Adventists, if you talk to, I've seen articles about groups of ministers who are really, really unwell and getting type 2 diabetes, who are getting cancer and getting all these things. It's, it's, a, it's a health halo of the Seventh-day Adventist church that they hold mm. up to the, the public and say, look how healthy we are. And, yes, there are some people who have lived into their hundreds. There are quite a few in the 90s, but all my grandparents lived into the, well into their 90s and they all ate meat. Yeah. So it's a distorted view. They had to find somewhere, and this was how the Seventh-day Adventist Church had been able to claim the blue zones. Their area, Loma Linda, has been called a blue zone. Blue zone. But very, very different to the other four blue zones of the world. And, and, and I could go into lots of discussion on this, but we're really going to well, be. Well, that's the thing. We're, we're, we're come, almost coming out of time now. I'm really interested to know where you think this is going. Do you think that they're going to sort of get to this stage where we're going to end up not eating meat eventually or because it seems like they're being there's a bit of a clash coming you know whereby big and, industry... and it's not just the church yeah it's not just the church there is big industry mm. frederick Leroy has talked about you know the world economic forum and their beliefs and the eat lancet diet um eat lancet planetary health diet well, walter willett was on the board of the american college of lifestyle medicine from its founding in 2004 after it changed from the christian association of lifestyle medicine so since 2004, he's been involved at Loma Linda University, even though I don't believe he's a Seventh-day Adventist. And so he's from Harvard University. And he was co-author on and the only nutritionist, I think, on the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet that we've all been told to eat no meat. If you look at the symbiotic relationship between the public health messaging of vested interests that want to minimise the harms of sugar and you look at the public health messaging of the Seventh-day Adventist church's ideology that want to demonize animal proteins and fats, that symbiotic relationship is made in heaven. Mm. Fred Steyer, who was at Harvard University, uh, which was the School of Public Health, was pretty much funded by the food industry. That's how it came about. They, this minimization of harms of sugar and processed food, there was a guy called Mervyn Harding who came from the College of Medical Evangelists, which became Loma Linda University. So Seventh-day Adventist church owned. He went to do his PhD under Fred Stair. And I often say, can you imagine Fred Stair's excitement when someone with purpose, without financial conflicts of interest, said, I want to do my PhD and prove that vegetarianism is healthy. They started producing papers in the 1950s. This symbiotic relationship between Harvard School of Public Health and Loma Linda University began back in the 40s and they just play off each other it's amazing and so mm. yeah it's not just church but it suits both mm. if you want to minimize the harms of sugar and you demonize animal proteins and fats then you're pushing processed food as the ultimate goal you know yeah. it's it, it's it's very tricky and pharmaceutical companies involve like it, it's it's very big but the seventh day Adventist church have been able to get into dietary guidelines. They've been able to get into medical education, dietetic education, and somehow convince the world that they are the leaders in health and wellness. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you've certainly given me things to think about and me things to look into because I, I, I've always gone with this guise of, 
you know, there's corruption out there, there's vested interests out there, and it's just down for the good people to say what they believe in and to say their truth and to, um, you know, my history is in nutrition, it's in health, it's in fitness. So for me and my, my research and my background and my personal experience with diet for guidelines to, to speak to people about what I know about, you know, minimizing carbohydrates and maximizing protein Mm -hmm. intake and get it from high quality sources. And that really is the best that we can do as individuals. And I mean, what do you think, people should be doing to, to, to kind of counteract this? Well, I've also done a lot of research into Coca-Cola and I won't go into all of that now, <clears throat> but if you look at Harvey Wiley, he was a chemist in the US and in 1904 passed, or 1906 passed the Pure Food and Drug Act. He banged his head against a wall for years trying to get that Pure Food and Drug Act passed and then after that still couldn't contain Coca-Cola and wanted to get the cocaine out of Coca-Cola, all sorts of things. So what he did was he threw his hands up in despair. He could not get it past policy, so he went to the people. And I think that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what we are doing collectively, going to people. He went and worked for a women's magazine, and he, over time, convinced 20,000 women to march on Congress, and that was how cocaine was taken out of Coca-Cola. Wow. It's about the people. Mm. And I think, you know, the more people who are talking about this, which is exactly what Harvey Wiley did, is it, you know, it's got to be from the ground up. I cannot get top-down policy to change this. I think it's exactly the same with what we're trying to talk about now. And little bits are getting chinked in about mm. the benefits of low carbohydrate, therapeutic carbohydrate restriction, which the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners have developed incredible guidelines you know, I think it's coming slowly, but we have to call out where the blockage is coming from. And I wrote an article last year um, about, oh, actually, maybe it was just earlier this year. Time goes so fast. Um, I wrote an article about the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Diabetes Bill of Rights fails to deliver. And for the first time, I went through every single line of the research that they used, and I called out their references. I called out everything and really exposed the fact that it was written by not just ideology, but people who, well, religious ideology and also the ideology against eating meat. And it was only up for nine or 10 months. I did big press releases about it and everything. It's come down. Wow. So don't think one voice can't make a difference. Yeah. They said they're rewriting it and, and it's, it's not going to change a lot because <laughs> they're a vegan promoting group, but they can't target and demonize low carbohydrate therapeutic reduction when I've made them or I've called them out for as it is. And that article again is on my website, isupportgary.com. It's come down and I've, you can go to the link on the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and see that resource has been taken down and it's being rewritten at this point in time. So we can keep challenging. And that's what I suggest to people. You can still make the choice of what you eat. You can still keep questioning and podcasts like yours, Finn, that's how the message gets out further. 100%. So thank 100%. Thank you so much for coming on and talking. And if people want to hear more about your research and see more about what you put out going forward, where can they find, where can they find that information? It's, it's been on um, isupportgary.com. That's been my website. And I think okay. if, we hadn't, if I hadn't created that website, Gary's name would never have been cleared. He was completely cleared and exonerated in 2018. So... 
that was sort of like a protection for us as well. I'm hoping to set up a website very shortly with just my research. And um, I'm being contacted more and more. And Nina Tyshoss has been writing some things with me. And I think, again, how do I get this message out further into a bigger audience? So that's where I'm heading now. Fantastic. Belinda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I hope we can speak again in the future. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing more coming Thanks, out. Man. I'm going to be digging into more research on the back of this. And um, I hope it sparks some interest in some of our listeners today. I hope so too. And again, I'm not anti-vegan, not anti-vegetarian or not anti-religion. I just think we have to be allowed to have a choice as to what we do with our lives and how we eat. 100%. Yeah, I, t- t- I, totally, I totally agree. We're not... Yeah, it's 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 personal choice above all, rather and than health. and health. Personal choice for health. Yeah, exactly. And knowing what the consequences are. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Finn. That's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on.